Our scripture this evening is found in Psalm 18, verses 25 through 36. Psalm 18, verses 25 through 36. You know, Psalm 18 can only be written by someone that has gone through Psalms 1 through 17. Okay? Psalm 18 can only be written by someone that has experienced great difficulty and has gone through what we talked about last week, that dark night of the soul, where they despaired even of life itself. And David has gone through a rough patch. And what kept David going throughout all of that is what must keep us going as well. And that is that we must yearn for the appearance of God. Psalm 18, and we'll begin in verse uh, 25, is that right? I second-guessed myself. Psalm 18, verse 25 through 36, and in honor of the reading of God's word, let's stand. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. For you light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hind's feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand upholds me and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. Let us pray. Father God, we love you so much, and we thank you for the reading of your perfect and infallible word in our midst this evening. And God, as you illumined the heart and mind of David when you gave to him this perfect and infallible word, we ask, O God, that you would open our hearts and minds this evening as well, and that you would cause us to understand and celebrate and apply your perfect and infallible word to our lives. Lord God, we love you with all of our soul, and we trust you with all of our heart. We offer to you our love, our lives, and this prayer in and through the name of our risen Lord and Master, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Obviously, over the last few months, we've been looking at the Psalms, and we have uh, come to see that, as I said a moment ago, that David has gone through a rough patch. Uh, It's really difficult, you know, and again, I enjoyed the way that that we do things because it's really kind of difficult to contextualize all of David's life. If if we're talking about David this week and next week we're in, you know, Galatians and the week after that we're in Luke and the week after that we're in some other book and and we really don't have the time to contextualize 
what we've been looking at. And obviously, as we looked at Psalms 1 through 17, we saw <coughs> excuse me, that David has gone through a very difficult period in his life. Psalms 1 through 17, we don't know, you know exactly what period of time, how long it took David to write that. We know that this covers a number of years that David was on the run from Saul, that he lived in constant fear of his life. He never knew. He was one that, you know, that every noise that, that he heard, he had to be aware. He had to know what that noise was, where it was, and, and determine whether that was a threat. And if you've ever had to live on, on edge like that, you know that it can be physically and it can be emotionally draining, that, that it just wears you out. And, and God has has been David's constant companion. David has always, his heart has always yearned for God to uh, inject himself into that situation. And, and what David is showing us now, what David is showing us in Psalm 18, is that even though at the time David was going through whatever trial he was talking about in Psalms 1 through 17, he recognizes now that God has been his constant companion. He opens the psalm in verses 1 and 2 by celebrating this about God. He says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Listen to me. Let's stop right there for just a minute. Why? Listen, why is David able to speak to the Lord in the daytime? Because he had cried out to God in the nighttime. He had cried out to God in the darkest times of his life. He had cried out to God when he despaired even of life itself. And now he has seen the deliverance. He is experiencing the deliverance for which he yearned. And he knows that God has done it. And he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Throughout the Psalms that led up to this, I mean, we even saw one of the Psalms. David opened that Psalm with, how long, O Lord? How long do I have to go through this? And, and, and he despairs, and we've seen what he said. We've seen what he wrote, that, that, that he was just, he, he, he was over his head. He couldn't stand it anymore. Can I summarize verses 1 and 2 for you? And in fact, this entire psalm, David is saying, I wouldn't take anything from my journey now. I wouldn't take anything for my journey now. Oh, it was hard. Oh, it was hard. But I see now what God was doing. And I am a better man because God took me through that. And so David acknowledges that God is his strength. 
He acknowledges that God is his rock, that he wouldn't have been able to stand unless he had been standing on the word of God. He acknowledges that God is his fortress, that even when he was out in the middle and felt vulnerable, he knew that he was protected by angel armies and that God had him encircled and would not allow his enemy to come against him. Listen to me, beloved. Just as David said, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. God said of David, I will not allow anyone's hand to be risen against my anointed. And David says, I recognize that God is my deliverer. He is my God. He is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is very personal. This is very personal. This is a psalm that talks about everything, giving God thanks for everything. Listen to me, beloved, for everything that David had gone through. He was thanking God not just for his victories, but he was thanking God for his trials. He was thanking God not just for the bright light of the day. He was thanking God for the dark night when he felt that he was so far away from God that his prayers were only reaching the mouth, uh, the roof of his mouth. And yet he knew. He knew that God was always with him. I love you, O Lord, my strength, my strength. I could not have made it through Psalms 1 through 17 unless God had been my constant companion. We need to bear that in mind when we're going through difficult times. We need to bear that in mind when we're going through circumstances. Listen, I don't think uh, any of us will ever face circumstances like David faced. You know, I, I, I can't remember the last time somebody threw a spear at me uh, or somebody tried to kill me. Now, you know, I, you know, so many times we're like the apostles. I remember in my undergraduate work, we were studying the, the Gospels. Y'all remember when the apostles were, were going across the sea? And Jesus was tired. He was slap-worn out. And so he's asleep in the back of the boat. And a tremendous storm rolls in upon them. And it was a storm that was so ferocious that men that had spent their entire lives on this lake were scared. Okay? They were scared. And they go over and, and they wake Jesus up and they said, Lord, don't you care that we're dying? And the response basically is, you're not dying. And yes, I care. Okay. So many times in our life, we, we feel like the circumstances are going to kill us that we're not going to be able to bear up under them. And David, Psalm 18 is showing us He's saying, guys, I invite you into my past. And that's why God had David to write down so much of his life. He says, I invite you to go back and to look at everything that I went through to get where I am. And, and everything that I went through first passed through the hand of God. 
And God was with me through it all. And even in all of my struggles, even in all of the times that I directly and consciously broke the word of God, God could still save me that I was a man after God's own heart. Oh, praise God. Because I love you, oh Lord, my strength, my strength. And so David is celebrating, and and he understands. He understands. Do you know that there is a very, very slight chance that when you go and flip a light switch that you could be electrocuted? It's a very slight chance, okay? I mean, the odds of it happening are pretty astronomical, but it could happen. Why do we keep flipping the light switch? Because the last time we flipped it, it worked. Right? The last time we moved it, it did what we expected it to do. And beloved, if we count on an inanimate object at that level, then shouldn't we count on God at the same level? See, we understand that God is going to behave in the present and in the future the same way that he behaved in the past. That's why we have the Bible. That's why the writer of Hebrews will tell us God does not change. He does not change. The way that God dealt with David is the way that God is going to deal with you and I. The way that God dealt with Peter is the way that God is going to deal with you and I. The way that God dealt with Paul is the way that God is going to deal with you and I. Here's some good news for you, beloved. The way that God dealt with Lazarus is the way that God is going to deal with you and I. The grave has no meaning to us. I've told you in the past that in in leading up to, to Holy Week, Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave as a last minute reminder to those around him that resurrections are possible. That in God's economy, resurrections are not only possible, they are to be expected in Jesus' life and in Jesus' ministry. Anyway. In our verses tonight, David recognizes a basic scriptural truth. And that basic scriptural truth is that we reap what we sow. We, now, I'm not going naming and claiming on you, beloved. Okay? I'm not asking you to sow your, your faith gift, and, and I'll give you my, my prayer hanky that I prayed over. Okay? I'm just teaching a basic scriptural truth. Go all the way back to the garden. God told Adam to sow what? Righteousness. He told Adam that he could do anything, he could eat from anywhere except for that tree in the middle of the garden. And the enemy came along and said, Adam... You need to sow something else. You need to sow your own independence. You need to stop relying on God because God is lying to you. He knows that the moment that you eat from that tree that you will become like him. So sow your own independence. 
Adam thought that he was sowing for illumination. The knowledge of good and evil. He thought he was sowing illumination. But what he sowed was darkness. Separation from his wife. And separation from God. But in his mercy, God illumined the darkness of their lives and gave to them a promise that we mark on Friday as Jesus fulfilled Genesis 3.16 and we celebrate next Sunday the complete and total destruction and defeat of death as our enemy. God illumines our darkness, beloved. Now, it, it doesn't seem like it sometimes. It doesn't seem like it sometimes. When you're going through the night and you don't have a flashlight, it seems awful dark outside. But when you get into the light, it makes all the difference in the world. Verses 25 through 27. So, the promises of the Bible are just for a select few of the super righteous, right? No. David says that the love and the kindness and the activity of God is available to everyone. With the kind, you show yourself kind. If we sow kindness, we reap kindness. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. If we sow blamelessness, we reap blamelessness. With the pure... You show yourself pure. If we sow purity, we reap purity. Hmm. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute. You know, our kids, y'all know that I I manage the content filter at, at work. And our kids think they're being smart and they will creatively misspell some of the things that they're looking for. And I'll be honest with you, I cannot account for every possible misspelling of a word uh, in, in my filter. But generally there will be enough in the search that even though they creatively misspelled it, I see what they're doing. Okay? I don't, listen, I don't always choose to respond. But I got a hit yesterday from a student that is well-known to me. Okay? I marked it. Giving the student, I thought, if it was just this one, we blocked it, I'll let it go. If they continue searching, I'll get involved. God is much more infinite than that. If we try to trick God, If we try to act crooked with God, present ourselves to him all dressed up and shined up when we're in his presence, God says that he will show himself to be astute because he knows what we're going through. God, listen to me, beloved, God does not show favoritism or partiality. Amen. Amen. You know, when, when Billy Graham was alive, do you understand that God was just as interested in hearing your prayers as he was in hearing Billy Graham's? 
Isn't that a blessing? I mean, you would think that, you know, if you were praying the same time Brother Billy was, that God would just go, well, I'll catch him the next time Brother Billy is praying. I got to listen to him. Okay. God doesn't show any partiality or favoritism. In Acts 10, man, I love Peter. Okay. In Acts 10, Peter is in Joppa. And he, he, he's staying at a friend's house. And there's this guy by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion. And, and the word tells us he was a God-fearer. He loved God. He was, just, he was on board with David. In, in verse 1, I love you, O Lord. Cornelius was a, a God-fearer. Cornelius had a problem, though. He's Gentile. How does he fit in? How does he fit in to this Jesus movement? Because from where he's sitting and at that point in the church, you know what it looked like? It looked like a, a Jewish movement. It looked like only Jews were welcome within the church. And Cornelius <coughs> is trying to decide, how do I, a Gentile, fit within the context of being a Jesus follower? And obviously this troubled him. And God gave Cornelius a vision. Now, can I get a witness? God gave a vision to a Gentile. Okay? Now, in Jewish thought at that time, in Jewish thought right now, God doesn't deal with Gentiles. He doesn't speak to Gentiles. And so God gave Cornelius a vision, and God says, Corny, can I call you Corny? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to send two of your guys to Joppa, and there's a fellow down there named Peter. And I want you to ask Peter to come up here and explain the whole thing to you. Here's what I love. Peter couldn't explain it to him at that point. Peter didn't have the answer yet. Peter had no idea, A, that he was about to be called, and B, that he was going to have to preach on this topic. Okay? And so Cornelius sends his two guys down to, to, to Peter. And while they're approaching the, the city, Peter goes up on the roof to pray. And he commences praying. And y'all know the story. God brought down a sheet. And it had every animal, every animal on the planet, including some pork ribs and some ham hock. All right. And, and, and probably even some shrimp with a nice cocktail sauce. You know what I'm saying? And, and God says to Peter, Peter, rise up and eat. Peter thought he's being tested. And Peter does the, the, the righteous thing. He says, no, Lord. I'm not going to eat that which is unclean. Acts 10, 15. Look what God says. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Okay, now, let me get this around, your mind around this. Okay? Who did we start talking about? Cornelius. 
who is what? A Gentile. Now, what's probably Cornelius' number one problem in the eyes of Peter and the rest of the Jewish followers? He probably hadn't been circumcised. Okay? We don't know. We're never told. But in Peter's mind, at best, Cornelius could be, you sit over there while we praise the Lord. See, God begins talking about food, what God has cleansed. (laughs) In other words, Peter, in just a couple of days, you're going to meet a guy by the name of Cornelius. And you're going to react that he's a Gentile. And you're going to think that somehow he is fundamentally different from you. But what I want you to hear, Peter, because Cornelius has questions about how he fits into the body of Christ. And what I want you to know, Peter, is that what I have cleansed no longer consider unholy. And Peter said, okay, cool, Lord. No. Verse 16. This happened three times. Peter was the least little bit hard-headed. Can I get a witness? My wife is going, oh, amen. Three times. It had been 30 times three for my husband. Where else have we seen three times in Peter's life? (laughs) There's a sermon in there, beloved. There's a sermon in there that God pursued Peter. Peter obviously objected. He objected. And I love this. Now, while Peter, verse 17, was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision he had seen might be, hey, is there a feller named Peter living here? Uh, yeah, who are you? Immediately, God sends the contextualization of this vision into Peter's life. And so Peter goes with them. Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Now let me ask you a question, beloved. If Peter had preached this sermon yesterday, would it have been the same sermon? It would not have been. All right? God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Listen, beloved, that's major. That is huge coming from a devout Jew. God rewards each of us fairly and equally according to our actions. All who humble themselves and submit to his commands will be given victory over those who arrogantly arise in disobedience to God. That's what David says in verse 27. In Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Paul puts it this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Paul's going to make it explicit. We've been talking about this, and we've seen this principle. Paul's just going to lay it out there. He's a no-nonsense kind of guy. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. 
For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now listen, beloved, that's about as simple as you can make it. That's about as simple as we can make it. Are we sowing to our own flesh? Saul was sowing to his own flesh. Saul knew that the throne had been taken away from him. And and listen to me. I think he knew that this is not going to end well. But he thought, I am not under any circumstances going to let that little runt of a boy become the king. I will take him out and somebody else will have the throne. But it will not be David. And so Saul is sowing to his own flesh. And he reaped corruption. But David is sowing to the Spirit. And David, from the Spirit, reaped eternal life. David had a relationship with God. And his righteousness was the result of his faith in God. Every victory that he had won had been won by the Lord, and David recognized that. So he took no credit for his triumphs. What he did do, though, was place himself in the way of victory. Have you ever heard it put that way? He placed himself in the way of victory, where God would bless him and grant him favor by living righteously and according to God's command. Beloved, we need to place ourselves in the way of victory. We need to place ourselves in the way of victory. We need to place ourselves in the way of being kind so that God will show kindness to us. We need to place ourselves in the way of being blameless so that God will show Himself to us blameless. We need to place ourselves in the way of purity so that God will show Himself pure to us. And we need to avoid uh, putting ourselves in the crooked way so that God doesn't have to deal shrewdly with us. We need to place ourselves in the way of victory. And it's not hidden. It's not hidden. Now, here's the second truth that David teaches us in, in this. God often treats people the same way we treat others. Mm. Matthew 7, 2. For in the way you judge... You will be judged. Anybody here on board with that? Anybody Anybody here want to be judged by the standard that we use to judge other people? Man, I don't. I don't want any part of that. Okay? And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Honestly, beloved, to me, that's one of the most frightening things that Jesus ever said. Because it, you know... It speaks to the condition of my heart. It speaks to the way, you know. I know none of y'all do this. George Carlin did a routine years and years ago. And he said, did you ever notice that anybody on the highway that's driving slower than you is a moron? And anybody driving faster than you is an idiot. We may not say it out loud. We may not give them the old one-fingered salute. 
it all. Sometimes we struggle to win that mental victory, don't we? To win the war that's going on in our mind because Jesus in in that same Sermon on the Mount equated our thought of doing something with the fact that we've already done it. By the standard of measure that we use, it will be measured out to us. Jesus told us to expect the same measure from God that we give to others. Think about, if you want to see this, when you get home, read Genesis 27 through uh, 28. Remember Jacob, Yaakov, whose name means what in Hebrew? Deceiver. Deceiver. If If you're going to start a nation, would you pick a guy whose name means deceiver? As, isn't that great that God did that? But what did deceiver have to go through to get to the point where God could rename him to Israel, Prince of God? He first had to live 14 years with a guy by the name of Laban. And Laban, Laban was a little bit more shrewd than, than Jacob was. He got the best of him every time. Until Jacob finally had had enough and he packed his wife in his trash, or wives in his trash, and they ran. And Laban had to catch up to him in, in the desert. God was showing Jacob that this guy is dealing with you the way that you're dealing with everybody else. And verse 26 tells us that if we insist on going devious ways in our dealings with God, God will outwit us as we deserve. Verses 28 and 29. David moves from joyful thanks for the past to confidence in the future. He knew that God had dealt with him in a certain way in the past, and that gave him confidence that God was going to deal with him the same way in the future. As David looked back, I mean, look at the odds here. David's army was very small compared to the army that Saul had. Saul's army was numerically superior. Saul's army was a well-trained, well-regulated standing army. These are men that know how to fight. These are men that know how to do what Saul has called them to do. And yet, time after time, David won the victories. And David understands that God had given to him everything that he needed to be victorious. All the resources that he had needed, God had provided to him. In every struggle, God's provision had proven adequate for victory. Here's a hard truth for us to learn. You ready for it? The light of God shines brightest when the night is the darkest. The light of God's love shines brightest when the night is the darkest. If we will hold our empty lamp before God, He will fill it with the oil of His Holy Spirit. 
When you cannot see the way, turn to God and look for his light. He will lead and guide us. Verses 30 through 31. David could say that the word of God is tried. How could he say that? He tried it. He'd done it. He'd been there, done that, and he had the crown to prove it. We would say he had the t-shirt to prove it. David got a crown for it. He had the crown to prove that the word of the Lord is true. Listen to me, beloved. Many don't know this from their own experience. Because they will never allow themselves to be put in a situation where God must prove his word true. David knew the truth of this from the circumstances of his life. David makes a powerful statement about God's word. It is tried and true. You can trust the Bible. It was forged in the heart of God and has never failed a warrior of God yet. God's powerful presence sustained David through every peril. God had been with him throughout the entire ordeal. He was the shield that fended off the blows of the enemy from Psalm 3.3. Look at what God said, or David said, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. David was despondent. All he saw was defeat. All he saw was this thing not turning out well. All he saw was that that this guy, this prophet, had showed up at his house one day and said, you're the next king of Israel. And his life went downhill from there. Okay? All he knew from that moment on was conflict. Conflict with the most powerful man in his nation. And now David understands, he says, God, you're the one, you're my glory. You're the one who lifts my head. Beloved, God is not a mythical idol. He is real. He is alive. And he personally shows up when his people need him. Verses 32 through 36. David is a mighty warrior. This is a man that knows war. He's very good at war. He burst onto the scene in Israel in the most unexpected way. As a boy, armed only with a sling and five stones. He had five. How many did he need? He only needed one. He only needed one. He defeated Israel's greatest enemy. He defeated Israel's greatest enemy. His skills had been honed in his father's pasture. The lions and the bears of his youth were no match for him. Yet he fully realized that all of his victories were possible only through the abilities that God had given. And so David says that because God has done that, He makes my feet as the hind's feet and sets me 
upon the high places. As God gave David what he needed, God will also give us what we need. Listen, we're not cessationists, are we? I know some of my brothers, especially those, it, it tends to, what I tend to see is that as a man goes further and further through seminary, an awful lot of them become cessationists. A cessationist is one that believes that the last verse, that we've somehow missed the last verse of Acts, and the last verse of Acts should be, thus ended the mighty acts of God. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. If I, if I believe that, beloved, would I pray for you when you were sick? Would I pray for you when you were going through a, a difficult... What's the point of praying if you're a cessationist, beloved? If you don't believe that God is going to be involved in your life, that God is going to respond to your life, that God is going to respond to your troubles, sometimes in miraculous ways, then what's the point of praying if you believe that God has stopped His miraculous acts? I don't believe that. Why don't I believe it? Because I've seen God move. I've seen God move in my family's life in miraculous ways. I've seen God move in y'all's lives in miraculous ways. I've seen God move in other people's lives in miraculous ways. I've seen God move in ways that cannot be explained by human knowledge. And so David could, could rest in the fact that as God has moved in the past, he will move in the future. And then, you notice what he he says. He says that God is gentleness. Your gentleness makes me great. Your gentleness. Hmm. God's gentleness to David was great when he was a despised member of his family. Neglected, ignored. Tending the sheep in solitude. God's gentleness was great to David when he consoled his soul when Saul began to envy and hate him. God's gentleness was great to David when he gave him a friend like Jonathan. God's gentleness was great to David when he granted him the self-control to spare Saul's life twice. God's gentleness was great to David when he protected him even when he was foolish, such as when he acted like a madman in the court of the Philistine ruler. God's gentleness was great to David when he prevented him from fighting on behalf of the Philistines against Saul and Israel. God's gentleness to David was great when he comforted him after David had lost it all at Ziklag. For David encouraged himself in the Lord. And afterwards recovered all. The gentleness of God made David great. The gentleness of God makes every believer great also. More than we consider. In this world. You know James talks about it. But in this world we tend to measure greatness in an entirely different way, don't we? Somebody drives up in that Mercedes-Benz. Somebody drives up in that BMW. Somebody drives up in that expensive car. Somebody drives up in fine clothes. Somebody lives in a nice, beautiful, wonderful house. And we judge them as, as being great. 
But let me ask you something, beloved. What person is greater than the elect of God? What person is greater than those that can look at the grave and say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Who on this world has greater riches than a child of God because we are a co-heir with Jesus of everything that God owns? Who has greater influence in this world than the child of God who can move the hand of God with our faithful and righteous prayers? God's faithfulness to David in past conflicts gave him confidence and courage to face the battles that were yet to come. Let me tell you something, beloved. I know we're almost out of time. You are made great through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's gentleness in your, in your life. Paul put it this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Paul saying the same thing. That he is celebrating that the gentleness of God makes him great. By the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, your worth or value is increased. Jesus showed you where and how to walk in order to be victorious. You are able to face and defeat your enemies in the strength of God, whether you can see them or not. As a true believer, you are a child of God. You do not have to turn away or run away from your enemies. Instead, you can continue to fight, advancing until your battles are over and you are transported into the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul ended his life this way, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. And guys, I've just got to tell you, I'm really bummed about it. Is that what he said? No, he didn't say that. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith in the future. In other words, when I draw that last breath here on this earth, when that executioner separates my head from the rest of my body, There is laid up for me the crown, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. Beloved, Paul was in a dark place when he wrote that. He was imprisoned. He was waiting to be executed. And Paul could say, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And he was waiting for it. And Paul knew that God had and God will illuminate his darkness because he loved his appearing. And, oh, beloved, God will illumine our darkness if we love his appearing. Will we love his appearing?